Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, We'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Joel Wittenberg speaks with Eli Kasdan. Joel is the former chief investment officer of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, one of the largest philanthropic foundations in the United States. Eli is the founder and chief investment officer of Kasdan Capital, a $3.5 billion investment firm focused on investments in life sciences. 
Their conversation starts with Eli's thematic case for biotech and the role of big pharma. They turn to the firm's assessment of company management teams, private market strategy, internal management of research and decision-making processes, and the future of Kasdan Capital. And first, I chat with Joel about how he came to invest with Kasdan and the fit of the strategy in Kellogg's portfolio. Joel, great to see you. Thanks, Ted. Great to see you as well. Well, this is a really fantastic conversation you had with Eli on biotech and Kasdan Capital. I'd love to hear, how did you first come across Eli? We were doing a very extensive search into the biotech opportunities out there. We had had a long-only strategy in place, and what we really wanted to do was to find that expert. We literally looked at every manager we could find, and the goal was to just literally do one of the most thorough searches we've ever done. The name that kept coming up over and over among some really good managers out there in this, in this space was Eli's. What we saw was this manager who had a great track record as well as a great reputation and, and added it, the old one plus one equals three. So what was it that was coming up about him that, say, distinguished him and the firm from, let's say, the other ones you seriously considered? He's in a lot of the flows. He's always in the conversations. And when he participates in a name, he gives credibility to those investments. So when he takes a position, people notice that he's taken that position. And we felt that he was just additive to those names when his name got associated with it. So when you put it in the portfolio, was it part of a biotech strategy or did it become your biotech investment? It's part of the biotech strategy. The strategy we went into was is lockup fund. We were looking at both the lockup as well as the hedge fund, but the lockup fund was pre-IPO companies, and his knowledge of making that connection from an investment in a pre-IPO and then going to the IPO, his knowledge of understanding a public equity stock was what we felt was really the value add there. And so that's why we were excited about that. It was our first time investing with him. So we put it into an allocation for a fund in, as a first time investment. But that was why we went with that strategy in particular, although he was a finalist in both strategies. Well, Joel, thanks for sharing this conversation with us. It's a great one. And let's have at it. Let's talk about how you came to where you are, who you are, your background, and what your path has been. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. So I have sort of a long history, windy road that led me to this seat as a portfolio manager, investor in life sciences, both in the public markets and the private markets. I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up on the Upper West Side to a family that was from my birth in the capital markets, investing my father was an early investor in cable TV. He started a discount brokeraging business in the early 70s when they deregulated the industry to, to, as he described, support his cable TV habit. I come from a long line of entrepreneurs and sort of merchants. And so he, he was a good business person. He built, let's call it, fourth or fifth largest brokerage firm in the early 80s. Fidelity wanted in to discount brokeraging, and they acquired my father's business. It was a first lesson in that they offered him 
cash or the equivalent in stock in Fidelity and come run the brokerage business. And my father said, oh, these guys are crazy. And so he took the cash. <laughs> if he had taken the stock, this would be a different podcast about what's life on a boat like. And he began looking for the next thing. And that's when he stumbled on biotech. Went back to Wall Street as one of the first biotech analysts at Oppenheimer, then Merrill Lynch. And then started one of the early biotech funds in the late 90s called Cooper Hill Partners, investing in public and private life science companies. And so my childhood dinner table had two conversations. It was business, which was the in, in biotech investing, or uh, this house he was restoring in the Berkshires. And so we called it the work camp. So you could pick one conversation or the other. And I think I always settled in on, on investing in biotech. So I was sort of conditioned early on about the trials and tribulations and what to look for and what's important and how to think about it in a sort of a broadcast receiver dynamic. And I started my own business in college. I ultimately graduated from Columbia Business School and went to work for my father's firm with a goal of becoming a a great sort of investor as I thought about it. I didn't really know what that meant and started doing deep research. And that was sort of the fundamental principle of my father's process, which was become the expert. So I've always sort of grown up that you can't sort of BS your way through any investment. You have to become the expert. Unfortunately, my father passed away in late 05. I took the work we were doing at his firm. I brought it over to Alliance Bernstein and worked there on life sciences. And I began to appreciate that technologies were changing. Um, And I always had a vision. I caught Alliance Bernstein was like my PhD program in investing and being an analyst. And I'd spent about four years there really studying the space and starting to recognize that technologies were transforming the landscape. And it was really going to accelerate the predictability and productivity of the industry, which had theretofore been really unproductive and cyclical and boom bust. I published this black book, which listeners can if they're having a hard time sleeping, can download from the internet and and read about 108 pages of how this industry would unfold. And I respectfully resigned and set out to start a fund. I raised a very small amount of capital from 12 pretty sophisticated investors who had been, you know, they weren't life science investors, but one was a very successful private equity business builder, some hedge fund managers and some other investors, and they gave me a small amount of capital. I said they're very sophisticated. I think they were equally brave and set out to invest in the space under Kasdan Capital flag, doing public and private investments. Today, we manage three and a half billion or so in capital across public and privates. We've invested in over 100 private companies, everything from the sort of picks and shovels enabling technology research technologies, DNA sequencing platforms, all the way. And this is another thing I learned from my father, who was obviously an early tech guy, was that the picks and shovels generate the steady sort of tractable returns, but the big impacts come from the applications of technology. And so in our world, those are diagnostic companies or drug development companies, or we're starting even now to see opportunities outside of human health into what we call industrial or synthetic biology, specialty chemicals, ag bio, seed modification, livestock management. So the firm invests across that ecosystem. It was just me in an office about 10 plus years ago. Now we're a team of close to 40 and probably a little less than half that on research. And so that's my path. There's a lot of learnings and twists and turns in there. It's an incredible path. And 
Let me go to your PhD program. So your document is called The Dawn of Molecular Medicine, and I read 108 pages of it. Did you fall asleep? <laughs> I did not fall asleep, and I really appreciated yeah. the executive summary, too. Yeah. Um, but uh, you identified sort of the three or four themes, mm -hmm. and that was 2009, and sort of where, where it's gone from what you originally identified, which was the seeds of the firm, to yeah. where we are now. How has that evolved to today? The first element is that it wasn't a sort of wake up in the middle of the night in a, in a cold sweat. You know, aha. It was the product of interviewing every person I could talk to. I have a sort of talk to anyone at least once policy, good companies, bad ones, key opinion leaders, you know, basic researchers, policy, a tool provider, a diagnostic company, a payer. I had been born with a good last name in life sciences, but had no connectivity to the tech industry per se. But Alliance Bernstein, we were the top shareholder in Intel and Google and Amazon. And so I could pick up the phone and call these firms. And I remember calling Intel and I said, are you guys thinking about genomics? And they go, well, we got a guy on the 11th floor, Wolf Pinfield, he's thinking about it. So I spent at least two plus years just interviewing like this. And asking questions. And actually, it's a very powerful engagement with a company. Alliance Bernstein, when I joined, had $800 billion under management. That was definitely enough to get you in the door at a company. But when you talk to someone in the context of you're doing a sort of a study of the industry, and the, it's a different participation. You're not sort of just capital. You're part of the industry. And I think maybe my genius at that moment was an ability to get people to communicate with me and talk and listen but then to string together what seemed like disparate pieces into a cohesive thesis. And that thesis was and is that the technology's cost curve for analyzing and manipulating molecular biology, DNA specifically, had come crashing down. Just for context, the human genome was finished in 03, cost the government about $3 billion and took about 13 years to do. If you had started in that day, it would have taken you three, four, five years and cost you 300 plus million. It was done in a room full of 100 machines and postdocs moving samples back and forth. Can now be done in a day on one machine for 500 bucks. And that trajectory became very clear to me that that was happening. And, and so the question then was, well, if you change the cost curve for analyzing and manipulating molecular biology, therefore you increase the understanding. And oh, by the way, the industry has gone from boom, bust, pharma's going to assume the whole thing to actually there is an industry. There's the Genentechs and the Biogens. And the, this is a real self-sustaining industry with revenue. And the science is at a point far more we don't know than do, but we know enough. What with this low-cost technology will happen? And so I started to piece it out. And basically the thesis was, well, we're going to be able to use this information flowing through our bodies to diagnose disease early. And in diagnosing disease, we're not just going to be diagnosing on symptoms, but we're going to understand the molecular underpinnings of it, the sort of computer code, if you will, of what's wrong. Once you understand the computer code, you can design something much more specifically to fix flawed code, sort of precision in a precision medicine way, and you can design clinical trials in a much more organized way, which was basically the early thesis of biotech. One of the big insights that I've had over the years is there is, for big technology waves, there's no wrong idea. There's just timing. 
someone said this at Alliance Bernstein, and I later learned that it was a Howard Marks comment, but the difference between too early and wrong is slight, right? And so precision medicine had been an early promise of biotech back in the 90s. And I had heard a lot about it, obviously. There. So I said, oh, maybe, you know, maybe this will actually make precision medicine happen. So that was technology improving, leads to better diagnostics, leads to more precision based clinical trial and development, increases predictability, which by the way, for an investor, you want to improve your expected return. You want to improve the probability of success. That is directly tied to understanding the mechanism of disease and recruiting patients in, i.e. then leads to higher expected returns, which was part of our thesis was invest in those companies with higher expected returns. The next element was, well, if you start to understand the code in dysfunction, you can understand the code and function, like that what is driving the cells to do what they do and be the way they are, which is going to lead to greater control over the cells. And your cell therapy is going to become a thing. You know, and you can correct burnt out T cells, re-engineer them or stem cells, repopulate tissues and things. And so that was the next element. It was sort of of the line. And then actually the firm, because we were such large investors in the payers and providers, the hospitals, the insurances, they said, well, what does this all mean for life expectancy and the insurance model? And I was like, oh my gosh, you're, that's, like a, that's another level. But that was the final chapter to say, this has big macro implications. So that was sort of all laid out in that 108 pages. When I first started, I had to convince people that any of this was possible. And I would spend, you know, of a, of a 60 minute meeting, I would spend 58 minutes being like, no, no, the cost curve is changing. The industry is not boom bust. Like, so just get people to believe. Where we sit today is I think, especially in COVID pulled forward a lot of belief up into the current thing. I think people recognize the power of the industry. And just to give you context, we went from in 2003, when the SARS outbreak broke, took us seven months to read the genome of the SARS. And you have to read the genome to create an effective vaccine. When COVID broke, it took us two days. That information was digitally sent to Moderna, and it took them two days to create an mRNA vaccine prototype that is identical to the one that we take today. And it took them 45 days to scale it up to medicinal grade product. Never before in history could you have done that and respond. And so Everyone understands today the power of what's happening and believes in it. The diagnostic business, and this is sort of the interesting thing when, you, when you're investing in science and technology, is I had a sort of a linear layered, you do diagnostics, then you do the drugs, then you do the cells, then you do everything, industrial biotech and all that stuff. Turns out that while the diagnostics were technically feasible, the reimbursement industry didn't want to pay for them because their experience was blood tests. We pay five bucks for a blood test. And here, you know, X, what Foundation Medicine, which is one of the pioneering companies, wants you to pay $3,000. They thought, what are you talking about? You know, to sequence a tumor to match against therapy. So actually, the drug companies and the venture capitalists behind those drug companies and the investors and the drug developers and entrepreneurs realized that you have a much higher chance of being successful in clinical development if you use these tools, you know, precision medicine, develop your drugs. And so the therapeutic part of the story actually came before the diagnostic one, which took me a while to adapt. I think the other critical thing when you're investing in these spaces 
is again that sort of timing element and this is the difference between being an investor and an academic we are not academics you know academics publish a paper it's debated and then they move on investors get real-time feedback if they're wrong or right and often you're going down the road highly convicted this is the way to go and then you say you know what a couple of things have changed you got to go back the other way and so you have to adjust what's interesting is as those drug companies started making these precision medicine products, they needed the diagnostic in the market to use the drugs. And so that pulled for the payers to see the diagnostics. So those things came over. And then the cell therapy, we are now in a cell therapy world where there are approved cell therapies, the technology is getting better. We're seeing a wave of companies specifically in cancer, but you know, in a decade, you will be much closer to all of us experiencing whether personally or through our extended families, someone that's undergone cell therapy, whether it's to fight cancer or to replace some organ under dysfunction. And then the fine, you know, this industrial piece. Turns out that the science is well appreciated. Mendel's peas and, you know, botanists have understood genetics and things for a very long time. But the sales cycle farmers takes a long time to grow up and believe that these new technologies will improve their yield. You know, these are just pure economic decisions. And so that's taken a longer time to happen, but it's all sort of taken off. As I think about understanding what's going on from the macro of the entire industry. So we've got these giant pharmaceutical companies and they put things in trial for what feels like forever. What's happening to their model versus your model that you described? And then what does that mean for them? There's been a sort of big brother, little brother relationship with pharma and biotech since inception. And that relationship has gone from a dominant big brother to more of a partnered big brother over time as biotech has matured and their technologies have improved. Today, about 70% of innovative drugs are coming out of small biotechs. They're still largely being commercialized by pharma through either acquisition or through a partnership. But the idea of a long duration clinical trial is a product of scale. You're recruiting tons and tons of people. And the reason you're doing that is to get enough statistical significance that you can show the drug works or not. And that's because you don't know specifically who in a patient population is going to respond. And that's because your drug is not that specific or you don't know the mechanism of your drug. And so one of the powers of doing a precision medicine trial is if the drug works, it will tell you that it works or not very early because you've got patients that are supposed to respond genetically to the drug. Also, you're gonna learn very early. In your phase one, traditionally phase one was a safety study. Phase two was a sort of exploratory, you know, scale it up and let's see if we can see signs of efficacy. And then phase three was, let's go full in and scale this and try to prove efficacy. In a precision medicine world, your phase one is still a safety trial, but you can actually show signs of efficacy and you're you're like in 100 patients. And if you show that signs of efficacy, you feel very confident, you skip the phase two, you go right to the phase three and you run a trial and you are very confident that it's going to work. The rub is you just reduced your patient population from hundreds of thousands of patients to tens of thousands of patients. The thing that I think people should appreciate is in the context of breast cancer, the symptom is very similar. There is the mass in the breast, 
the causes are very different. There could be dozens of different genetic mutations that are causing these cells to grow out of control. And each of those mutations could require a totally different drug. And so if you just develop a drug and you say this should impact this gene, but I'm going to recruit all women with breast cancer, you're going to have to recruit a lot of women to hopefully catch enough that respond to the drug. But if you go in there with a diagnostic and say, I'm only looking for women who have a BRCA mutation, you know, and this PARP inhibitor is going to match, it reduces the whole scale of the endeavor. Commercially, it also reduces the whole applicability of the drug. Now, there is a debate, and I think it's an accurate one, which is you trade off total addressable market for duration of therapy. You make the money back because the patient lives and uses the drug for a very long time. There's a trade-off. But for pharma trying to replace Lipitor revenues, this is not a great story. So they're wrestling with how do you run a scaled business when the new products are not scaled products? And so they're trying to acquire lots of them. The other thing to keep in mind, and and it's not that pharma doesn't get it or has their head in the sand. And in fact, I learned this from someone who was in the media industry, and I was always, we were talking about disruptive technologies and how these large incumbents always get disrupted. And this person you know, mentioned to me, he said, listen, in every one of these large organizations, they always have a division that is right on the cutting edge doing that new science or that new technology or the new model. They just can't get enough airtime with the larger sales force or the commercial, you know, commercial drives a large organization. And if you tell a sales guy, stop selling that product to a million people and sell this new one to 50,000 people, you know, it's sort of, what are you talking about? And so I think pharma in the last 20 years had jettisoned their R&D efforts to focus on distribution of brand. And I think the new products that are coming out are much more targeted, much more high efficacy, don't need brand to say this one's better than the other, the data is there, and are less of a distribution model because they're very narrow patient population. So they're wrestling to figure out how they fit in this world. And meanwhile, for them, these biotechs are starting, you know, investors like me are saying, don't sell yourself, don't partner, you don't need them, I'll give you the money, go at it alone, build out commercial, become your own standalone company. And many, many more are going that path. And I think that they don't need pharma in the same way. And so we're in that transitional phase. And I think what we say now is biopharma, which is to say that there is no pharmaceutical companies anymore. They are biopharmas. They are biotech and pharma together. And some of those will get there through being pharmas that acquire biotechs. And others will be biotechs that become like pharmaceutical companies. The people side of this business, your name comes up everywhere. So talk about how you evaluate a company from the people, right? You've got the technology and the people. Talk about, we've talked a lot about the technology. So yeah, this is the soft science of, this is what makes value investors look at growth investors and be like, (laughs) you guys are just, you guys are grabbing at straws over there. Uh, It's sort of trying to wrestle down fog. And I think it is, you have to have a sense of people. It's an EQ, IQ game. And so I think that some people have higher EQ than others. Some people can relate. You, you have to be a good listener and you have to be a good communicator in, in getting people to talk to you. You have to know the questions to ask. Again, back to being the expert. The reason to be the expert is that to know the questions to ask to make sure that the person on the other side of the table is answering them in a logical way. I think that's something else to keep in mind is growth investors, we are identifying a expected future 
and then betting on a company to arrive at that expected future, but recognizing that there's a lot of pivots and shifts in the road to that future, and that's going to be determined by people making decisions on the front lines. And so you do not want to be smarter than the person you're giving the money to. What we always say is we want to be smart enough to confirm that the management team we're giving the money to is still smarter than we are. And our job is to always be smart enough to confirm that they're still smarter than we are. You want to ask questions like, you know, oh, we were meeting with other companies and people are bringing their manufacturing in-house. What are you doing with your manufacturing? And we think that you should scale your manufacturing internally. We never want to hear management to say, oh, that's a good idea. Like, uh-oh, you know, that's a, that's a red flag. What we want them to say is, yes, we, you know, we thought about that and six months ago we instituted a, a program to do that. Or, you know, Eli, I know you're hearing that and I know that for some companies that's the right thing to do, but this is why we're not doing it. We're humble enough to know that we're wrong a lot, but we're informed. So we just want to have that dialogue. The other thing I think to appreciate is this is not a one-man band type of game. I grew up playing football as a kid, so my sport to relate it back to is football, which is a sport that there are big guys and fast guys and people that can throw the football and people are good at tackling. And for each role, for the play to be successful, everyone has to do their little position move in the play. And if one of them stumbles, the whole play falls apart. And so when we interview companies, we want to make sure that each of these roles is filled by the right player that knows their position. And I think over-indexing on any one position, I think a lot of our peers are incredibly brilliant and built much of their brilliance as PhDs or MDs, and they over-index on those skill sets, whereas it's actually a whole, you know, you need a great scientist, you need a great chemist, you need someone that does clinical trial design well for outcomes, right, to make the trial show significance that is also has good regulatory engagement, is a good financier of all this endeavor and can bring all these people together and then ultimately commercial. Those are all different positions. Those are all different types of people. So you really got to get inside the rank and file of a company to really appreciate how strong it is. And then at the end of the day, the biggest tell that I've learned is great senior C-suite management as you dig into the rank and file and get to the junior scientists, if you're constantly confronted with someone that's really impressive, if you had good feelings about the C-suite going in and you're constantly seeing talent within the organization, you can feel good about your opinion because it is 100% true that A's hire A-plus people. And similarly, B's hire C's and C's hire D's. And so when you see that diminution of talent down the pipe, I think you can be concerned. And then, you know, I come from a very judgy family. You know, you've got to be judgmental. you got to say, why did you do that? That seemed like a mistake. And you've got to be transparent in your frustrations. But do it in a way that engages because people change. Certain people leave. Maybe your good feelings were misplaced. The final piece, I think, is you have to, as a growth investor investing in people, you have to accept that you're going to miss stuff in the sense that, I feel like 70% of the time I will call a bad management team and they will turn out to be a bad management. Bad managements screw up amazing technology in fantastical ways. I can't even believe how they destroyed that business. 30% of the time I will call an incapable management team or something I don't feel comfortable about and they'll go off and do wonderful things and create 
incredible value and I will have missed it. But I'm comfortable missing the 30 so that I miss the 70. Because there's no worse way to lose money than giving it to someone who you knew wasn't going to be successful, but you were enamored by the tech or the market opportunity and they go on to prove you right that they were not capable. And so I think you have to have that discipline. And it sort of flows into FOMO, the fear of missing out, which is something that dominates growth investing. And it's, it's a hard psychological thing to overcome. And you just have to have some disciplined processes to make you say, okay, this isn't the team you want to align with. Eli, talk a little bit about your network and how you think about the network and what it is. What is the network? We interview thousands of people a year. The important part of a network is the continuity of it, calibration. I remember I was in the value investing class at Columbia Business School, and you got a ticket to go to Omaha and see Buffett for their annual meeting. And I went, and it was Charlie Munger and Buffett up there eating the peanut brittle or whatever, drinking the cherry Cokes or whatever they're doing. And he said, it's all about calibration. Like for Charlie, if Charlie says he doesn't like something, then we're not that interested. If he says he hates something, we start to get interested. And if he says it's the worst idea he's ever heard of, then we get as much money into it as possible. It's all about calibration. And it's the same for us and people and the network, which is meeting someone once and understand, like talking to a key opinion leader and then saying, we don't like, I don't, uh, the science, I don't like it, or this technology, I don't like it. If you don't have any context, as you always say he doesn't like something, once in a while, he says he likes it. Is that actually a shift from normal? And so you need to calibrate all these interactions. And you can only do that over time. You can have good instincts, but you really have to calibrate over time. And so it's a big deal for us to continue conversations over time. The other thing that I learned from my dad is I once said, oh, I want to go pick that person's brain. And he said, don't ever say that again. That is the most disgusting comment I've ever heard. And his thing was that you're basically reaching in and taking information out. It's one directional. And you want to be having a dialogue. I use the word dialogue because it's two directional. And you really, a lot of people that we engage with are academics and teachers by profession. And so you want to trigger the teaching mode. You're exchanging information. They're teaching you. You're teaching them. And you have this ongoing engagement. And so that's the network. We have, over the last 20 years, built a network of talking to all sorts of different people, outreach, sharing information, seeing them at conferences, reaching out, constantly evolving the network, but making sure that we're not reaching out to people in the moment of need. There's a real healthy friendship and an unhealthy one. And for a fund manager, you have to be afforded that time. One of the biggest competitive advantages I think we have as a firm is duration of capital. And that was a very deliberate decision when I started. I raised capital from 12 people and they gave me very little of it. But I built into the fund structure, long duration, committed philosophically and contractually and make it hard to come in and leave. Not because you want to make it hard for people to come or go, but you want people that they're not looking for quick returns. They appreciate duration. And so we now have 330 clients because there's a lot of volatility in what we do. We've been very transparent about that volatility and very careful. There is no pejorative way to make money. Some people do it quick through trading, others do it long term. But the way that we generate returns necessitates duration, and we want to make sure there's a client match. And so we've got these 330 LPs like yourself 
and others that are really long duration capital. No one ever calls. I joke like I would love people to call and talk to me. I'm always having to call them. But it really allows us to focus in those moments when we need to focus where the rest of the world is anxious. We can kind of bear down what's going on and step in without worrying about a client feeling anxious and nervous. And that's been one of the most powerful investment tools we have is duration of capital. You've had some incredibly great calls and in an industry where there's a lot of misses. You've only had one that didn't work. That's pretty good. (laughs) Your process worked. Yeah. I can't tell you the similarities between us as allocators and our due diligence and what you just described with the people side. No, I think it's the same game. Yeah, but I've had more than one miss. So (laughs) When I started the firm and I said, you know, we're going to have a public-private investment vehicle. It was funny. A prime broker who, you know, remained nameless, who was our first prime broker, very, very reputable firm, said, you can't do privates. No one's going to want privates. This was after 2008 and the financial crisis and level three assets. Everyone was stuck with all these level threes. And so they they assumed no one would want any more level three assets. And they said, you know, if you do it, you're going to have to have an opt in. You're going to have to be very, you know, clients really have to know. Okay. I said, listen, this is growth investing. This is a, we're in a secular growth story. There's innovation always happening. If you're only investing in public companies and not talking to private companies, you're only hearing half the story. If you're talking to them but not investing in them, they're only telling you half the story. And on occasion, the tip of the spear innovation is going to be happening in the private market. And that's where you're going to want to be. But I would always say, I'm not a venture capitalist by training or disposition. And I would also say, and I hope never to invest in a private company. I only want to invest in the public one, but occasionally you have to. 100 plus companies later, we do it a lot. But what I meant is, I think the best venture capitalists are taking an idea and forming a team around it, putting on the company t-shirt, pulling IP together, really sort of formulating this thing. That's sort of two people in a garage concept. And that is the riskiest period of time. Getting out of the front of the garage and getting to the front lawn is the important step. And so we rarely invest in the garage. We're usually coming in the front lawn. Once you're on the front lawn and these product cycles are relatively long, they should have a higher success rate. And then we are overcapitalizing these businesses so they're not going to run out of money, which is the equivalent of a growth investor sort of Buffett sins. Lesson one, don't lose money. Lesson two, don't forget lesson one. Same in growth investing, like don't run out of money. Lesson one, lesson two, don't forget lesson one. So that reduces our failure rate. What typical venture investors try to get as much money in in the first slug, and then they fight dilution on the way down. What we're doing is scaling up over time because these companies are burning 100 to $150 million every 12 to 18 to 24 months voracious consumption of capital. And so what I appreciated was you don't have to be every dollar in in the beginning. You can scale up. It de-risks substantially, but you can put larger and larger sums of money comfortably. And you have a lot of conviction because you're in the company and you're seeing it. And so I think that that process, while staying very thematic, making sure that we're in where the puck is going and that we're calibrating around the best teams and really not doing a spray and pray sort of shotgun mentality, it typically yields higher returns. The other thing is the industry is young enough that I always joke, it's like we're picking zebras, but it's a field of asses out there. 
<laughs> you know, so you're like, oh, that zebra, it looks, you know, it stands out. They jump out at you. And they're pretty clear, these exceptional management teams. And so it's just easier. I would think that if I had been old enough and I was, you know, kind of a uh, computery kid when I was growing up, if I'd gone to those software fairs in the late 70s, you might not have figured out Lotus or these other things, but you'd be like, that's Steve Jobs and that Bill Gates. Those guys are impressive. And so that was sort of the game. So, and you've started answering this, but you have three financing tools, private, public, and now SPACs. Yes. How do I think about those as an investor? The privates are, as you would expect, series A, B, C round financings and early stage companies as they move towards clinical commercial. And we are coming in and syndicates, sometimes we're leading the syndicate, we're taking board seats or board observer roles. And it's a traditional private market experience. There is a IPO, time to public market, that has been far shorter than what the tech industry has experienced because unlike the tech industry, these companies' product development cycles are seven to 10 years and they need capital. And so the public markets are are where they can get big chunks of capital. So similarly, the public markets have evolved in our space to appreciate early stage companies. And so they're willing investors in preclinical and early stage clinical companies. What that means is you're really making a venture-like investment in the public market with just a little more liquidity. And so you can get venture-like returns in the public markets. And so that's very attractive. And if you've been engaged in the company when it was private, you have a comfort and conviction in the company when it's public. When volatility hits in the public markets, I would say in my experience over the last decade in this fund, nine out of 10 times, it has been because of something unrelated to our industry. Inflation most recently, these macro factors. So. When you get those dislocations in the market, but you know that your company is well-financed and is still has an innovative product, you can be a buyer there. And so you can generate great return profiles in the public market. The SPAC is a new tool in the tool belt and came about through one of our public companies. I played matchmaker, rabbi, and marriage counselor to this company. We introduced them to a private company we wanted them to engage three years ago. A couple of years later, they consummated that relationship into an acquisition. It was a large one. We participated in the pipe financing of that. It opened up. The market really liked the transaction. It, and it's one of these classics, one plus one equals more than two kind of transactions. And the market really appreciated it. This was a diagnostic company buying another diagnostic company that opened their TAM into cancer, which was a higher multiple business. And stock opened up. And one of my early partners, who is my partner in the SPAC, a really successful investor named Keith Meister, who I happened to play Huey football with and go to high school with. And he introduced my wife and was one of my first investors. <laughs> so he called us up and said, you know. I was wondering the connection. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. He's got, a, you know, he's got a lot of history and he's just a very thoughtful, really successful sort of capital markets guy. Said, congratulations, how much money we make because he's an early investor. And I sort of am bemoaning, bemoaning my lot in life is sort of my way. Oh, if I had more money, I could do, if I had better structure, I could do deals like this all the time. And he proposed to me that what I was talking about was really a comp you could accomplish with the SPAC. Most people think about the SPAC as a backdoor into the public markets, bypass the IPO process. But really what the SPAC is, if you think about it, and this is what Keith taught me, he said, you should do a SPAC. I said, what's a SPAC? 
<laughs> That's where I was. And I sort of was being facetious, but it is a one-off private equity-like vehicle where you can take a large sum of money in an unstructured way and structure a transaction where you can do these inorganic combinations. You can evolve the governance and the board. You can bring sponsorship to a story. You can help a company talk to public market investors about their future. In the IPO process, most of these companies can only talk about next year and what's happened before. And what's happened before is we spent a lot of money. And what's going to happen next year is we're going to spend a lot of money. That's not a compelling story for a company that in three, four years sees their future. And so there's a lot of attributes of the SPAC that I think are really compelling. And so we agreed on that call or maybe a few later to launch this tool. We've done two transactions. We have a third in the market. This is our private equity deal where there are companies that can benefit from large sums of money, sponsorship, want to do cool and organic things, want to get strategics involved. And it's a great tool for that. That makes sense. Better liquidity, more liquidity, and a better story. Just shifting a little bit to the AI and machine learning and how it ties in here. I learned from something I read that you wrote about Yoda Bytes, which was the first time I heard that. But we'll all be using that soon. It's got 24 zeros, by the way. Yeah, I yeah, counted. Right. <laughs> We're in such early innings with AI and machine learning, just as a country or a world. How does it play into this? The ATCs and Gs, amino acids of DNA, are like zeros and ones. It's just, it's a four code, not a two code. It's infinitely more complex. Evolution has made all this backdoors and redundancies, and it's a really complex system, but it is a system. And as technology has advanced, both computing power and imaging power and processing power and all that, and this machine learning AI stuff, it's a tool that's helping companies understand and translate the biology and understand the disease. The thing I want to say is that it is like my financing tools. It is a tool. It is not like set and forget. Like we're going to turn this machine on and it's going to create great drugs and, and you know get rid of the people. A great example is we invested in a company called Relay. And what they do is they use supercomputing to create models around protein interaction. Proteins are dynamic. They're folding. That's how, you know, form is function. And for the longest period of time, we studied proteins in a crystallized one formation state and tried to find little pockets to target drug, but they're moving and turning and flipping. And so molecular technologies evolved for us to look at proteins in motion, but then we needed computing power to capture that images and so we could turn it over. And this company got access to an Anton supercomputer, which is at the time one of the fastest that had been created by the D. Shaw guy. And he had wanted to use it in the absence of drug developers to create all these great drugs. And he tried and tried and tried, and it didn't produce anything. But so he, in partnership with Relay, that brought in very accomplished drug developers, great chemists, great biologists, and he added the computer. Now with people that knew how to direct the tool and use the tool, the company has multiple drugs in development. And so I think that that's something important for investors and people looking at the space to appreciate is AI is just AI until you give it a direction, until you give it good data, good input. If it has poor data, poor input, and is pointed in the wrong direction, it's not going to yield. 
but we're seeing it emerge all over the place. We're invested in a company called Page AI that is digitizing all 8 million pathology slides, little bits of tissue out of cancer patients. AI is most powerful, as I've learned right now, with images. That's what it works through the best. And so having all these digital pathology images, now the computer can say, oh, that's looks like a, you know, a cancer cell, you know, malignant cell, and that's a benign one, and can start to make these calls that the human eye is less good at and really can flag disease early and maybe can start to add an empirical opinion on top of a genetic one to this, and we can make it as a drug discovery engine. We're seeing AI pop up in reading radiology and MRI solutions like in a company we're invested in called Imogen, we're seeing it being leveraged in the drug development world, taking massive amounts of data, massive amounts of imaging data, genetic information, electronic medical records information, and putting it all together and trying to spit out new targets, new sort of connections that maybe a drug developer wouldn't necessarily come to, and then allowing that drug developer to sort of hone in on it. So everybody is thinking of ways and making steps to involve it in their process, but it has yet to fully disrupt the model. So are you looking specifically for investments using it, or is it something that's one of the tools people use? For example, an investment will come to us, AI for pathology. So it's an interesting entry point, but it comes down to the pathology part of the AI story, you know, like the business end of it. It's not AI for the sake of AI. AI is an interesting element of what makes this company better than its peer, but it still has to have a business around it. And so, and I think that that's another investor's flag is technology is not going to cover up crappy businesses as much as you want them to. But I think similarly, or, or on another trend, that story of Relay with the computer, they needed AI capability and they just did an acquisition to bring in that technology and, and capabilities in-house. So we are pushing our companies who aren't in the space or who aren't thinking about that machine learning that would benefit from it, pushing them to go out and inorganically, organically, bring that in. So I think you'll be at a disadvantage, maybe it's a different way of saying, if you don't have that capability. And we see that across so many industries right now. So talk a little, just pivot a little bit here. Let's talk about your team. You said Mm -hmm. you've got 40 people now? Roughly 40 as as an organization with probably a little less than half that on research. And how do you guys make decisions? How do you do evaluations? So the first thing is, I learned a lot from my father, but he was not a great manager. And so I learned that that I didn't know how to be a manager. And I also remember a business school professor saying in a management class that what gets you into the seat as a manager, all the skills that you use to get there are not applicable at all and don't teach you how to be a good manager. And so I hired a manager and coach. Okay, that was the That's first great. Thing. Yeah. As we all do. As we all do, right? <laughs> um, that was really helpful and learned a lot about not just motivating people, but creating structure and process and how to facilitate and enable people to make decisions. So the other thing that I knew going into this business was that often they fail not on the investment side, but they fail on the business side. There is the business of investing and then there's investing. And so I was 
very deliberate in building out the business end, you know, the firm end of Kasdan Capital. And and over the last four years, we had a fund to firm offsite where we talked about maybe three or four years ago of transitioning the fund to a firm, to having multiple products and forced us to appreciate where we were non-institutional level quality and how to invest in that and bring people on. And so today on the business end of it, we have robust finance, half a dozen plus people, and we have a robust investor relation marketing arm where they're engaging with clients, not just to bring new ones in, but to keep people informed and happy, happy customers, a happy <laughs> proprietor and, you know, a support team around everybody. And we have a COO and we're always investing ahead of growth. That's the other thing I think that we've learned is responding to structural overwhelming, you know, fracture is not the right way. You really want to make the investment ahead of it so you grow into it and you want to be leading it, not chasing it. On the investment side, it started with just me. I will say when it's just you, you have perfect process. (laughs) (laughs) The problem is as you expand your team, you have to invest in the process of making decisions and collecting information. And today we have broken our group. So I make all the buy-sell decisions. Someone early on told me, if you make a mistake, make sure it's your own. That's very important to a cohesive investment. That generally means that I have to stay pretty close to stuff. But the scale of the organization, you know, I can't be doing all the basic research. So our process was designed to be comprehensive, to be flexible, to be disciplined, and to present information back to me so that I'm informed and how to engage me early enough in something that looks investable so that I have conviction like the analyst does. I found at Alliance Bernstein, one of my big frustrations was that as an analyst, I was expert. And the portfolio manager, as the structure, they were sort of organized typically, maybe by sector, but also by size, large cap, mid cap, small cap. And the portfolio manager may have come out of a very different, as an analyst, you know, been you know, a consumer analyst or like payer, if they were healthcare payer providers and I, and you would be left trying to convince the portfolio manager of your good idea. And if you were a very good communicator, maybe you were better at convincing. If the person understood what you were talking about, you'd have a better shot. And at the end of the day, the decision-making process felt very arbitrary and you always left feeling like that person doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. And I know everything and I can't believe that they're not doing it. And so it just creates a lot of tension and leads to sort of bad investment decisions. So I wanted a process where we knew why we were investing. We knew why something was 1%, why something else was 5%. We knew where we were sizing. And so I wanted to break each investment down into its components. Management team, market opportunity, return profile, risks, all these sub-elements that built up into a good investment. And so the process needed to uncover those things, frame them, and put them into a system that took these qualitative insights and turned them into quantitative factors so that we could debate. And that's taken 10 years to build. What's interesting is we did it in a systematic and digitized way. So now we have a data scientist in the firm and he can say, you know, you think so-and-so factor is really important, but looking back at the data, it has no connection to returns. Meanwhile, this other thing that you didn't think 
for instance, catalyst strength. We have a factor called catalyst strength, which is to say, how impactful will the earnings be on the quarter or this clinical trial out data point or some element one to three months out, what will be the impact of it? It's not overly complex. It's high, medium, low, high catalyst strength. What we learned was that high catalysts were negatively correlated with return. And low catalyst actually was, was positively correlated. And we wasn't that we were getting the catalyst wrong, meaning that we were calling the quarter up 10 cents and it was really down five. It was that we were calling it right, but expectations had gotten there and 10 cents wasn't enough. Now it had to be 15 to beat, right? And so it was the expectation that the stock had run into expectations, which is a wonderful insight to your sort of feeling really good and you're like, they're going to nail the quarter, but actually everyone's already there. So we have those kind of factors that allow the team to debate and feel very comfortable and they change, they're dynamic. So when I size a position down or when I step a position up, everybody knows why it's happening and we've had a discussion about it. When I started my firm, I said to my wife, I don't think I can do this alone. And she said, well, why don't you hire someone to help you? And I said, well, I don't really like anyone. (laughs) which was my way of saying, I don't really know of anyone that does the work the way that I do the work. Deep expert, you know, the industry has evolved from my father's generation to this generation, from the Oppenheimer deep research, become the expert to a much more trading mentality. And so that's what I was experiencing. And I said, there is this one person who had worked for my father And she said, well, why don't you call her? And so I did. And she wanted to join the firm. But there was one contingency. She had moved out to San Diego and wasn't moving back. (laughs) So I said, oh, well, we can can adjust for that. And then another person joined from Boston. So we have three offices. But it's actually the the decentralized model is a, a real process burden. How do you share information? How do you capture information? How do you debate? How do you create all this dynamicism? really takes a concerted effort. And so we had to invest in a lot of technology. Turns out now we all know what I'm talking about in the last year. This decentralized model that people was hard to invest in can work when you have these tools. And we were there. So every morning, 7.45, we run through all the news. We do thousands of meetings a year. Good companies, bad companies, key opinion leaders, as I said, the whole network, public, private. And we were realizing that we were having meetings, but we didn't know, we weren't telling each other ahead of time. So in the morning, we got a news flow, and then we have the meetings. And then you say, oh, when you talk to so-and-so, mention this other thing. Then at the end of the day, we debrief in, oh, I met so-and-so today, and they told me X, Y, and Z. So we have a debriefing. How do we keep that information fresh? We're touching base throughout the day. Then every Friday, we have a research day. We just digest. Maybe we do a presentation on a company. We go through the portfolio. We go through these adjustments on our model. And every month, we relive the month. Then every quarter... And so the process really is about engagement. And then the final piece that I learned from the management coach that I then hired a process person was super athletes join teams and they want to be a star player. You have to tell them how you go from the bench to the field to the star player. And you have to have a process for that. And that was an insight that the process person brought on. And so we have a very clear associate to analyst to senior analyst. And I think everyone kind of is aligned to that. That's great. That's the key is that alignment. So looking in the future, what does a portfolio look like in 10 years from now? First of all, full disclosure, I'm an optimist. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I think that just like tech is a big portion of everyone's portfolio today, over the next decade, life sciences are going to be a big portion of people's portfolios because this is industry under secular growth growing at 20, 30, 40, 50% annually. There's a whole real business aspect. These aren't just promised drug companies in seven years. They're the diagnostic companies, the tool providers. There's probably 300 billion in annual expenditures going into life sciences outside of therapeutics. And they're growing like a weed and these are high margin, 70, 80% gross margin businesses. And so in 10 years, I think this is going to be a well-appreciated, well-understood growth sector, much like technology. I think you're going to see generalist growth investors investing in it because that esoteric science piece is, I don't know how my cell phone works, but I know it works and that and doesn't preclude me from investing in Apple. And the reason is, is I know that Apple can make it work consistently and predictably and each upgrade, it's going to be faster and better. Our industry over the next 10 years, and I can say that comfortably, drugs are going to be higher chance of approval, higher chance of efficacy. Probability of success is going to go up continually. And cost of that success is going to come down. And that's just technology driving it. And so I think that the participation of the larger investment universe, I went to a conference of your peers, and you were probably there. It was called N- uh, NMS. NMS. Maybe it was three, four years ago. And they asked me, asked a couple questions with the little voter machine. And I said, how many people have 0% of their investments in life sciences? And it was like 50 to 60% of the office uh, of the audience. And I said, those that have exposure, is it 1% to 2%? And that was like 70 of the 50 that had. So if you take that test today, it's probably 60, 70% have exposure. It's still relatively small. If I go to that conference in 10 years, everyone's going to have exposure and it's going to be 5 to 10%. That is a lot of capital coming into this market in a market that, if you believe my optimism, is more predictable and more investable. It's just going to be a high returning space. And so for us, if you look at my portfolio and you say, what does your portfolio look in 10 years? We're about 55% therapeutics. I bet we're 30% therapeutics. The other piece is going to be split between industrial, biotech, new applications of this technology outside of human health, your food, your impossible burgers. These are all products of these technologies, especially chemical, sustainable plastics and things like this. This is all biotech. A good chunk is going to be in the information industry, which is genetic information, but electronic medical record information, patient information, how that information is used to diagnose yourself routinely and predict disease. And it's not just, it's a diagnostic, but it's going to be more than the genetics. It's going to be the combination. And then, like we said, machine learning and AI and stuff to tell us, oh, all this information means that you are pre-diabetic and you didn't know. We were invested in a company and one of their proof points is you go to the doctor and one day you aren't diabetic and the next day you are. But obviously that's not the case. You were trending in a way. And so the third of our portfolio is going to be in that kind of stuff. And by the way, it's probably going to look more like consumer businesses than it does like clinical ones. The other third-ish of the business is going to be in the services and tools and technologies, the sort of semiconductor-like and the Cisco's and the routers 
the plumbing, if you will, of the space. And I still think very confidently that you can compound at a 20% Kager over the next decade while buckle up because it's going to be very volatile <laughs> and it's not going to happen in a straight line. But what you're describing is so much, what you've described through this entire conversation is so much more predictability yeah. versus the old way it was, which was lottery tickets. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and as an investor, it makes such a difference. Well, you can invest yeah. in yeah. it and not speculate. And I, and I will say that back in the lottery ticket day, if you were a doctor, a practicing MD, and by the way, my wife is a doctor, and I always like to say, just because you went to med school doesn't mean you're a doctor. I mean, it does, but it doesn't. If you were a practicing doctor, you could say, even if that drug or device works, it's never going to make it into the system because it's sort of an understanding the, the industry. So you could screen out a lot of things that just made no sense. If you were a PhD, you may not have been able to say reproducibly, that's totally going to work, but you could have a better shot at screening out the things that absolutely weren't going to work. And so you increased your expected return. Today, it's very hard if you're sophisticated for bad science to get through the door. Things don't work, they fail, but it's well validated in models and the technology that small molecules, gene therapy, these things are understood. And so you can not get enough drug to hit the target, or you could have an unforeseen toxicity that didn't appear in the rat. Like there are the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, but it's not that sort of shot in the dark. I hope this works. I always say uh, there's this wonderful parable. It's called the drunkard's parable where, uh, or the street lamp effect. And a guy is drunk and he's looking under the street lamp for his car keys and a police officer comes over and starts looking with him. And a couple of minutes later, the police officer says, you sure you dropped your keys here? He says, no, no, I dropped them in the park, but this is where the light is. <laughs> that was biotech for the first 25 years. The lights are now on. It's much more predictable and it's much more investable with volatility along the way. That is a great way and an exciting way to end. It wouldn't be a capital allocator's podcast without the closing questions. So you ready for the closing questions? Mm -hmm. All yes. right. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? It is a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> From what I've heard today, I'm not sure you have one. I know. I, I've got to come up with one. I Listen, I don't know if it's my favorite hobby, but I do find myself cooking for the kids a lot and cooking a lot. And then a good wind down for me, I run without headphones slowly now, slower and slower. That's great. What's your most important daily habit? Waking up. <laughs> no. I write a little note to myself, if the year ended and if these things were accomplished and the world looked like that, what would it be that I would be happy? And that sort of helps me orient the day. What's your biggest personal pet peeve? Dishonesty. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? <laughs> Which two people had the biggest impact on your professional life? I think my father, indirectly, just listening to him. Another investor, a fellow by the name of Bob Birch, who was a longtime broker at Oppenheimer, but he, he really was just a very successful investor. And he's an incredibly optimistic person, and he never sells. And his lesson was, I have many, many, many shares of stocks that are best placed as wallpaper in the bathroom. But for the ones that I have always a few that more than pay for all the wallpaper. And so it's this idea 
that you don't need to be trading around and moving through things. And sometimes these wonderful companies can, if you hold on to them, can compound. So I think Bob was probably my other. And he also said you can never have too many friends. <laughs> What's the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it? I make mistakes all the time. The biggest investment mistake I've made in this firm, this fund, which because I've made a lot, my wife can tell you about is that I calculated the potential of M&A into my valuation model and overly weighted it for a particular outcome. And it drove me to size up a position, which basically, to say differently, I took on a lot more risk than I really had calculated. And the reason is, I'm not sitting on the board of the acquired or the acquirer. It's a, just an opaque thing. Maybe my valuation was right, but the probability I should have assigned to it was much smaller. So what the lesson was is you really have to make sure that you're measuring things that can be measured and you're assigning the probabilities of things that you really appreciate. And if you mismeasure and assign to the wrong probability, you can lose a lot of money without even realizing it. That's an incredible lesson. Okay, what teaching from your parents most stayed with you? My mom is an artist and a florist and a very artistic person. And she taught me to squint. If you don't know if you like the color or how things look, squint and things merge together and you can understand the composition much better. And I think that that's probably a good lesson is sometimes the forest through the trees, you can't see it. If you squint, you can see the composition of a company. And then my father's biggest lesson that he lived by and I think is personal integrity. That's really at the end of the day, if you don't make someone money, that's fine. But as long as the worst thing they can say, that's the worst thing they can say about you, it's, it's fine. Okay, and what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? Oh, that's a good one. I think that I was very stressed out in my younger self in how each of these pieces of my life decisions were gonna come together. I think it's this optimism. I think, you know, Understand that you're on a journey and that you don't really know what the learnings of this particular piece in the journey is going to bring to the next stage. I think when you're younger, you have all the energy and none of the wisdom. And when you're old, you have all the wisdom and none of the energy. And I think that if I had known just to be patient, I guess it's patience. It's just going to take a while to come together. And when you're young, that's a really hard lesson. That's great. Eli, I cannot tell you how awesome this conversation was and how, as an allocator, how helpful and getting into how you think is it's important to us. So I really want to just thank you for your time today. Thank you for your partnership and your friendship and look forward to the future. Yeah, thank you. This is awesome. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time. 